Hello and welcome back to another episode of Horribly Happy. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Sophie. And Happy New Year! Happy 2023. It's 2023! Yeah, yeah! Long time no talk. (laughs) I'm not a singer, but in another life, I think maybe I did have a good voice. I'm sure you did in one of your (laughs) past lives. Yes. So Sophie and I are coming off of New Year's Eve. It is January 2nd right now. Um, We did take a little two-week hiatus from recording the pod. Life was so crazy with the holidays, family, new jobs, blah, 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 that we just, uh, you know, we have no contractual obligations for this pod. So we're like, okay, let's just take a two-week hiatus breathe come back rejuvenated and that's what we did and I was sick in between yeah and you're sick like real real sick which <laughs> was tough like I know we've always said it but just like I hadn't been that sick in a while probably since I had COVID in the spring um, yeah and it wasn't COVID I tested a bajillion times not that it would have made a difference I still just didn't really do anything but um yeah so it's just kind of crazy and then I also so it's like a break from the pod but I also in total took like 11 days off of work so I go back sounds amazing I know I mean like that's including weekends um my company has a use it or lose it PTO policy which I really like because I think it forces me to use my PTO but um, yeah I actually respect that because then it's like oh, don't, you don't want to get paid out for your time. Like, and you don't want to roll it over. Like you actually like use it for like vacations or rest or whatever you need. Yeah. And like, usually I'm pretty good about not having so many days at the end of the year that I have to burn. But this year I just, I, I guess wasn't as organized with it. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, it's December and you have way too many days left with PTO, but it actually just like worked out that um, it was like a quiet week of no meetings for me. And like with Christmas, it's always like pretty quiet in my industry. So it worked out really well. I go back tomorrow, which will be um, tough. I would say I'm ready, but I'm not. <laughs> it's been really freaking nice. That like sounds amazing. And you've had like time to kind of get settled into your new house, like yes, and decorating I, and making it cozy. Right. I think that's the biggest thing is it's like, I wasn't granted. It would be fun to be like on a tropical vacation too, but something about having days off and just being home and not having anywhere to be like, I was just able to get into a routine. I was able to do a bunch of just like miscellaneous things that I've been meaning to do or like been putting off and just like it, and it wasn't overwhelming. Cause then I would just like watch Netflix at night and go to bed and wake up early refreshed. So that sounds amazing. yeah, it was, it was really, it was really great. I did do that this past weekend. I, so I took Monday and Friday off of both holiday weekends so Christmas weekend and then New Year's weekend I took Monday and Friday off so it was actually really nice too I mean I didn't have the full 11 day break but just like a quick three-day week in between those two weekends Christmas weekend was chaos we went to St. to my family's home, Zach and I did, and then we went to Zach's family's the second part so we really had no downtime whatsoever this weekend we stayed here in you know at home for the whole weekend we had plans a few nights with friends but we just like chilled and like kind of got our life back together and it felt so great just like a staycation sometimes is the best kind of holiday yeah and on top of the chaos of you guys like driving everywhere we also had a huge winter storm and a polar vortex so <laughs> it's just it was, been a lot it was so cold oh my god (laughs) so cold like negative 30 cold yeah it was brutal um so hopefully that has passed and won't come back again for a couple more years um the snow's not done though we know we all know that but yeah yeah it was it was good I'm glad we both refreshed same um I had my second annual new new year's soiree 
just a tiny gathering um, where essentially I make a big cheese board and invite people over. (laughs) Good snacks and then games. Yeah, I made my own or I made a homemade cocktail. It was like this um, coconut margarita. It was actually fantastic. And then our friend or dear, dear friend, Justy made a lavender. My best friend. (laughs) Made a lavender haze cocktail. Uh, Very good. Um, It was was a very mature New Year's Eve, but we did get a little bit silly from some champagne. So it's kind of fun. And we stayed up late. Yeah, we slept until two. It was crazy. And Sophie and her dog, Holly, slept over. So it was fun. Yeah, it was great. And then Holly was really hungover and threw up the next morning. But... (laughs) No, it's literally, okay. she she threw up everywhere. Yeah, fun. but not because she had alcohol. We don't really know. But she's better today, so no worries. Thank God. Um, sometimes you just have to clean out your system. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sometimes your body does it on your its own. <laughs> yeah, sometimes your body decides to do it, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then something else we wanted to talk about is that an arrest has been made for the Idaho murders. Yes. And a suspect is in custody and there's a lot of details we don't know. So we don't want to like speculate too much, but um, like things we do know is that he was. Um, it's so crazy. Yeah. He was a well, PhD student at a nearby university. Let's refresh. Like the Idaho murders were the murders of four college students that in happened. Yeah. In their college home. And it was just like a brutal, brutal murder and it was right before Thanksgiving yeah and there was no suspect right away that we knew of like the police were like asking for help and like um you know tips and all that because it was just like such a random act yeah to our not so the public knowledge they didn't have any like glaring suspects I don't even think they had very many people of interest or if they did they cleared them like very quickly um so yeah, so it was the the suspect that was arrested was Brian Koberger, and Sophie, you you told me that there was physical DNA evidence that was confirmed. Is that correct? Yeah, I saw on the news report that they used DNA to match him at the scene. So, or I guess I don't know for sure at the scene, but they used DNA to solidify him as a suspect I guess I don't know where they got the DNA from like exactly um and I also saw um like one like the head police chief said that I I think they believe that he worked alone but there's just like not many details out right now about like his connection to the the victims or the house or even really the school so I think everyone's just kind of like on the edge of their seats because right now it seems very random and even though that might not be the case it's just so rare for crimes like this to just be 100% random right well it's very so yeah Sophie was saying that he is a PhD student at Washington State which is like 15 minutes away from I can't remember which college but or which university, but which is like 15 minutes away from where the um, victims went to school Um, and that he was a PhD student in criminology. And there's like Reddit posts circulating of him like asking for um, people to join his study for his PhD, which is like asking like, okay, if you are a criminal or were a previous criminal, can you talk about, he was like asking very weird and obscure questions. Like, how did you feel during your, when you were committing the crime? What did you feel before? How did you feel after? Did you have How did you decide, how did you decide what crime to commit or like the victims? Um, I right, think it was even is, like, what did you do when you left the scene? Like, right. So it's it just was like very eerie reading that, especially after he's arrested. It's like, oh my God. I do want to know, like, I have not been involved on like the online sleuthing of the Idaho murders where like people on TikTok and Twitter and whatever were like, doing all this research, pointing fingers, mm-hmm. um, victim blaming friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um or accusing them Mm -hmm. 
I start I like saw them on TikTok and stuff, but I always scrolled quickly by because it just felt so icky. Like I you know, like as like people on the outside, you don't know like all the facts that mm-hmm. law enforcement has. And it's true that like sometimes there are like armchair sleuths that do solve crimes, but that's when like it's a cold case and like documents have been released to the public that like you know, like essentially with a cold case, you can like look into everything and like kind of do the research yourself. With something like this, there are things that are held tightly to law enforcement's chest so they can help yeah. detain the intruder um, or attacker. So like seeing all these speculations felt so weird because it's like you don't know these people at all. And like you're blaming people who are alive and like also victims of like their family members were just killed. So I tried to stay away from that discourse. And now it's like this Brian who was arrested literally was his name was never mentioned in all of these online mm-hmm. sleuths. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, like <laughs> you just like yeah. harassed people for two months straight and like it wasn't even the right person. Yeah. So I was definitely like kind of still tuned in online, but there was just so much speculation that many times like I would just scroll past it because I'm like if it's not like real information like I don't even care to fill my brain with fake stuff I did like listen to a couple conspiracies or like when they were looking for a white car like I did kind of tune back in for that stuff um I think you're right is like it's so hard for people not to just point fingers and create narratives and there's just so much misinformation. And then there's just like sick people out there who pretend they know details and are making anonymous posts as if they like knew something that clearly wasn't true. Um, I do think some web sleuthing can be beneficial in terms of like Right. right information is provided to the police. And then you let them take over and look into well, it. Well, I was um, just going to say, like, it is really good to have an online discourse about this because it spreads the word and, like, mm-hmm. tips are then given. Like, mm-hmm. the um, law enforcement received thousands of tips that were actually very helpful from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But I just think there needs to be some balance of, like, speculation versus, like, discourse to make sure that I mean like, yes you should be so careful about saying someone's name in an accusation of right. a murder or a very serious crime right that is nuts to me that is super crazy um, yeah so I think it was taken a bit like too that. far in this case and like 100%. same thing happened with like um Brian Laundry when mm-hmm. the Gabby Petito case was happening and like in that case it turned out that it was all accurate Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's really easy for things to get like to run away and just become like out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll update on that, uh, case as we go or as we find out more information, but, um, you know, hopefully peace can be found within the family of the victims after, after this arrest, it probably will go to trial. So, um, we'll just update as it goes, but this might be like a, a longer story. Yeah. And hopefully justice is served. Just two other pieces that I like read from an actual news article that were quoted from some policeman on the force was that um, he like drove, he's from Pennsylvania. He drove back home around mid-December to spend the holidays with his family. And his dad actually, I don't know how he got to Washington, but his dad went out to Washington to make the drive back with his son I'm assuming he like flew to Washington and they made the road trip back and I read something that they had been tailing him since mid-December so like you said they keep things close to the chest obviously the police had an idea of who this guy was Ryan was on a road trip back home yeah okay got it yeah um and then the other interesting thing which I just forgot but it might come back to me anyway. So yeah, I just like, just like to your point is that police purposely keep things close to their chest. The public is not meant to know everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's completely normal when police are keeping information. Oh, the other thing is that they paused. Oh, this is crazy. They paused the cleanup of, okay. So when did they arrest him on Friday? Yeah. 
Yeah. So there was like a press release from the police officer, I think the day before, just saying like, thank you, everyone. I mean, his demeanor was just. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about yeah, he looked happy. He looked excited versus and, like other and this times. This is like the police chief, right? Or yes, whoever the lead or the lead on yeah, the lead investigator or something. Um, his demeanor was just so different, and he just was like thanking the public for the tips. Um, he seemed very hopeful. He seemed very hopeful, and he didn't end by saying like keep the tips coming. He just was like thank you so much for the tips. Um, and people were speculative of like okay this guy it just seems like things might be moving forward like something's mm-hmm. gonna happen and then of course the next day the arrest was made oh and the press release he said that they were gonna start cleaning the house which is also like a tip off of they're like okay they don't need evidence anymore right. they don't need um but they have halted cleaning because um i think they're like extraditing him back to idaho or washington and they're halting the cleaning because I think there is potential that he might walk through the crime scene um, with the police officers. And that's like, that is speculative, but it I, it's like a higher level. There's like reason to believe that. I can't. Why would he walk word. through the crime scene to like say what happened? Yeah, I think there's maybe some negotiations about um, like maybe taking the death penalty off the table or stuff like that if he oh, wow. yeah and that was like also in the article I read because they didn't like say that exactly but they said they are pausing the cleanup because I think potentially he might be walking them through I don't know I'm, I'm not using their correct words but it wasn't just like completely sensationalized speculation it was mm-hmm. like there was a little bit of truth to him potentially returning to the scene with the police officers so okay um, interesting or maybe they want they want to have that as an option so they're pausing the cleaning so that they can use it as right leverage or an option or um a way to negotiate something so that will also be um very interesting okay wow fascinating yeah so those are all the facts that i feel like are reputable that i have heard so far right the rest okay yeah, we'll keep everybody updated as the um, case develops. Um, I know, Sophie, you have a pretty long, horrible story today. Yes. Should we get into it? Yeah. Yes, we shall. Um, I just want to do like trigger warning for sexual assault. This is like a very personal story, um, like not for me personal, but I'm just going to do my best to retell it, but I'll provide like sources for if you want to read more about it and learn more about it. Okay. I mean, I feel like we always do trigger warnings. This one is just really upsetting. Right. And like a really sensitive topic, but I'm going to talk about Chanel Miller and summarize her autobiography of, um, her experience with sexual assault in the autobiography is called no I don't even know if it should be called an autobiography because it's not necessarily like about her whole life but um it's called know my name which I read this book oh my goodness yeah I think at the beginning of last year um sorry my monday.com is loading oh (laughs) yeah you told me the story well obviously we this is the story of the woman who was raped the by rape Brock of Turner. Chanel Miller and yeah, by Brock Turner. Yes. So I know about Brock Turner, obviously. Yeah. A lot of people do. Yeah. I didn't ever hear her side of the story, Chanel yeah. Miller's. And, and you told me a little bit about it when you read the book. And it is, it it's so heartbreaking, but it's such a powerful thing that she did to like, you know, get her name out there and tell her story. Yeah. I, okay. It was two years ago. I started reading it and I did actually have to put it down for a couple months because it was so upsetting. Um, yeah. So I started, I read it like two years ago, but, um, I got maybe like halfway through and I had to put it down and for a couple months because it was, it was just like really upsetting. 
and really sad and just like made me hate men. And I was like trying, I was just like felt so clouded and like really angry. And I was just like this, like I can have these feelings, but it was like actually affecting my day to day. And I was just like irrationally angry at like every man and like my boyfriend, like it was, I was like, I need to actually put this down. So I did end up finishing it. It, it, It's a, it's an amazing book. I do recommend reading it if you feel like that's um, something you can handle in your headspace. Um, It's just a really good book, but I'm going to do a summary of the book that I found on quickread.com. And the summary is actually by Leah Shullery. And I'm reading like pretty close to verbatim what she wrote. So I just want to give her credit because this is essentially her summary of the book. Since it had been a couple of years, I felt like I couldn't. Right. Yeah. Like for memory, summarize it. Um, So I'm just going to jump into it. It's long. Sit back. And yeah, we'll get into it. Okay. Known to the world for years as Emily Doe, she was the girl whose victim impact statement went viral and was read by millions across the world. She was the victim of a rape committed by Stanford student Brock Turner, who was praised for his accolades in swimming. That night, Turner would assault the unconscious body of a young woman, only to be caught in the act and attempt to run away. The world was then stunned to hear that Turner was sentenced to to just six months in county jail and would only go on to serve three. Despite his light sentencing, the viral victim impact statement inspired changes in California law and many others to share their own stories of sexual assault. So that's a pretty brief overview, but we're going to start with who is Chanel Miller. Mm -hmm. You may have never heard of Chanel Miller, but you've likely heard of her rapist Brock Turner. The media labeled Brock as the Stanford student at the Olympic or the Olympic swimmer but many failed to label him as a rapist. The media attention hit Chanel hard. They labeled her as a partier, a girl who shouldn't have gotten so drunk, a girl who should have known better, protected herself better. The the criticism caused Chanel to hide for years behind the name of Emily Doe. In January of 2015, Chanel was 22, living and working in her hometown of Palo Alto, California. On January 17th, Chanel was living at her parents' house when her younger sister, Tiffany, had driven up from school for a long weekend. Tiffany and her friend Julia mentioned a party that they were going to that evening at Kappa Alpha at the Stanford campus. So um, her sister did not attend Stanford, but that was like near their hometown. So I think they had friends who attended school there. Yeah. Um, Chanel, no longer a college student, toyed with the idea of going to the party with them, and eventually she agreed. The last thing Chanel remembers is thinking about how she had outgrown the fraternity party scene. Her memory for the rest of the night is blank. However, she believes nothing about her actions from there on out is important. Little did she know that the public would scrutinize everything she did and said that night. They would analyze, measure, and calculate them to present to the world for evaluation. Chanel didn't find out what had happened to her that night until she read the details online. So this was something that I remember very specifically in the book. She like woke up in the hospital on Sunday. Like I'll go into details about like that experience and then went to work on Monday and literally read an article online about this woman who was raped at a college party. And that's like when she put all the pieces together that that was her. Wow. Um. So from the article, Chanel found out that she had been found half naked and passed out next to a dumpster behind the Kappa Alpha fraternity house. While she was unconscious, Brock Turner sexually assaulted her until two Swedish students who were cycling through campus discovered him in the act. At first, the cyclists believed they had simply stumbled upon an intimate moment, but once Brock tried to run away, they quickly realized something more sinister was happening. The students chased him and fought him to the ground. A bystander called the police who came and arrested Turner. She didn't know that the next few years, what the next few years would bring. She couldn't predict how the trial would change her life. She didn't realize just how broken the justice system is and that she would be vilified, characterized, and mislabeled in court. So, um, yeah, it was just like the experience of the next day is just sounds like so traumatic. And I remember her saying like her hair was just matted and a knot and there was sticks and leaves like for days, like stuck in her hair. Like it was just so traumatic and violent what happened to her. It it was like 
when you like hear those little details, it just like makes it even that much more real and right. gross. Well, um, and, like the I kind of remember the narrative. Correct me if I'm wrong, that like Brock Turner didn't know she was unconscious or something like that. Right. Which is like actually so untrue if like somebody stumbles across you, these Swedish exchange students, and then he runs away. Like mm-hmm. that's not a consensual act whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So and she kind of she touches on that. Okay. Um So upon reading the article that told the story of Brock Turner and the victim, Chanel was horrified. A story about a man raping an unconscious woman would certainly bring sympathy for the victim, right? This sex-crazed man was so sinister that he could violate a woman who was practically dead. Chanel poured herself over the comments of the article and found the responses were just as horrifying. They didn't criticize the rapist. They criticized her. Why was she at the party in the first place? She was no longer a student. Why did she get so drunk? Why wasn't she more responsible? Shouldn't she know better? As she continued reading, she knew she was just tearing herself down, but she couldn't stop. Those toxic comments hit her hard and affected her so badly that she began to question her own perspective. She questions what she did wrong, what mistakes she made, and how she put herself in that situation. While Chanel was distraught over her own credibility, media outlets were portraying Turner in a rather positive light. They included pictures of his swimming days, praising him for being a Stanford student who was on the swim swim team. He was a top athlete who participated in the 2012 London Olympics. Journalists gave him glowing character reviews despite his criminal charges of rape and sexual assault. Meanwhile, Chanel was only referred to as the victim who had too much to drink and was found half naked and unconscious. Since Chanel chose to keep her identity a secret, like initially, It was hard for her to find support among her peers. She states, for the past year, I have been raking through comments looking for signs of support. I dug through opinion pieces in local newspapers searching for someone to stand up for me. I locked myself in my car in parking lots, crying into hotlines, convinced I was losing my mind. All year, the loneliness had followed me in the stairwell at work in Philadelphia, in the wooden witness stand where I looked out at a near empty audience. Unfortunately, the loneliness would continue even when she revealed to her close friends and family that she was the Emily Doe that all the news outlets were referring to. She would soon realize that social lar- society largely disregards victims of sexual assault while giving support to the perpetrator. Wow. Yeah. So Chanel recalls the horrifying experience of waking up that morning in the hospital. Two men stared at her, an older African-American man in a red Stanford windbreaker and a Caucasian man in a black police uniform. They asked how she was feeling and if she was okay and if there was someone who could call, she could call. Chanel answered the question, still not knowing exactly why she was in the hospital in the first place. Finally, the deputy turned to her and said, you are in the hospital and there's reason to believe that you have been sexually assaulted. Confused, she slowly nodded her head, thinking they must have the wrong person. However, when she made her way to the bathroom for the first time, she made a discovery that both shocked and terrified her. With the absence of her underwear, she realized that the deputy was telling her the truth. The moments that followed include interviews with the SART, Sexual Assault Response Team. She watched as needles punctured her skin and bloody Q-tips emerged from between her legs, yet she felt nothing. She compares herself to a mannequin, turning off her senses. Was she really even there? At this point, the only people that knew about the assault were the people at the hospital and Chanel's sister. Her identity remained anonymous, and so began her double life. Quick question. Be- so yeah. when she found out she was assaulted, was that before she read the newspaper article? Yeah, so this is Sunday morning. So she didn't know, like, what exactly happened, just that she was possibly assaulted. And then she went home to work and read, like, oh, that Brock Turner was arrested. Yeah. Like, she just, like, kind of thought that there was, like, a misunderstanding and that they had the wrong girl. Like, she's, like, kind of putting the pieces together that she got too drunk. But she's kind of like, okay, this is just, like, a formality. Like, nothing actually happened. Um, Yeah. And then, right, the next day, she's reading this article online and is realizing, like, oh, that's what happened. So in the beginning, Chanel couldn't bring herself to tell her parents and her boyfriend that the victim they kept hearing about in the media was her. She simply felt compelled to protect them from the truth, and she couldn't bear to disrupt their lives with the news that she'd been raped. She'd been determined to stay as far away from Emily as possible, but after only 10 days, she struggled to stay silent. 
She broke the news to her parents first and finally told her boyfriend when he came to visit a few weeks later. They were doing long distance at this time. Can you imagine, like, being so alone? Not even feel, yeah, like feeling so alone to not even, like, feel like you have the strength or support to tell your partner, your parents, and right. your boyfriend. Yeah. Wow. It's very isolating. Chanel recalls how painful it was to break that barrier with the people she loved and how hard it was to explain that her vulnerability had been taken advantage of by a stranger. Thankfully, she found comfort and support among those who loved her. And while she tried to maintain her routine and normalcy of life, she was eventually forced to quit her job and focus on the trial, which would last a total of three years and eight months. Holy. And so, yeah, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like this is other stuff like you don't people don't think about it's not like she just like walked away from that experience the next day and was like okay like it's this like was not a quick resolution it's like no she hid it from so many people and even when she's told her closest friends and family there's still so many think about people you encounter in your everyday life that don't know that wouldn't know that like that had happened to you right trying to go to work while also like talking to a lawyer and like mentally just falling apart. Yeah. So many things you don't realize happen after the fact. Totally. Okay. So now moving on to the trial and the verdict, it's well known. It's a well-known fact that many victims of sexual assault fail to come forward because of fear. They fear the response of officers, judges, lawyers, family, and friends. It becomes even worse when the victim is intoxicated. And in Chanel's case too, intoxicated, too intoxicated to remember anything. However, Chanel believes she had a strong case. Her perpetrator was caught red-handed, right? The two Swedish cyclists caught Brock in the act, tackled him to the ground, and cried as they looked upon Chanel's unconscious naked body. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough. Chanel was still subjected to ridicule and judgment for drinking, while many sympathized with Turner, whose bright future was ruined. She knew lots of things about rape before her experience, but she goes on to say, quote, I didn't know that if a woman was drunk when the violence occurred, she wouldn't be taken seriously. I didn't know that if he was drunk when the violence occurred, people would offer him sympathy. I didn't know that my loss of memory would become his opportunity. I didn't know that being a victim was synonymous with not being believed, unquote. Chanel's lack of memory allowed Turner and his team to manipulate the narrative. It gave them the power to fill in the gaps with what they believed happened. Meanwhile, they were silencing Chanel and forcing her to relive the painful details over and over again. Her life soon revolved around court dates, which would be which would often become postponed. She would consistently prepare for trial, relive the moments, and then watch in horror as Brock's legal team twisted her words and made her seem like an unreliable witness. Brock's drinking, on the other hand, was framed by his lawyer as being a normal part of campus life. His family even spent $10,000 hiring a doctor who supposedly specialized in blackouts and testified that even in Chanel's state of intoxication, she could still give her consent. Okay, no. Unreal. (sighs) That doctor needs their license revoked. Yeah. Um, I know. The entire experience was traumatizing for Chanel, but on March 30th, 2016, a 12-person jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict on all three charges of felony sexual assault. Thank God. Right. Um, And now I'm going to talk about the viral impact statement. Um, So Chanel and her legal team were victorious. The jury proved to her that she was credible was credible and that she could be trusted. There was, of course, just one more thing, the sentencing. Brock still needed to be sentenced by Judge Aaron Persky. Prosecutors recommended a sentence of six years in prison based on the seriousness of the sexual assault and on the basis that Chanel was unconscious and Brock tried to run away. Now that the trial was over, Chanel felt free. She could finally be herself. So when a probation officer called Chanel to ask about her wishes for Turner's sentence, Chanel simply said, that she didn't want him to rot in prison and that he needed rehabilitation. Once again, Chanel's words would become twisted and made into something other than her own. The officer falsely claimed that Chanel wasn't concerned with how much time he spent in prison, that she simply wanted him to get better. The officer recommended a moderate county jail sentence. And that's exactly what Turner got. 
Claiming that he too had suffered from media scrutiny, Judge Persky believed prison time would be harmful to his future. He sentenced Turner to just six months in county jail, followed by three years of probation. His name was permanently entered into the sexual offenders registry, and in the end, Brock Turner only served three months. And on September 2nd, 2016, he walked free. So just incredibly frustrating (laughs) how traumatizing to go through that whole experience literally like work so hard to get him convicted he was a jury of your peers does agree with you that he should be held accountable and then the judge is like well what about his future Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's so frustrating so despite the sentencing chanel vowed that she would never let that she would never again allow her words to be overshadowed, her words being her property. She had the opportunity to read a victim impact statement in court, which would detail the impact the rape and trial had on her life, as well as the lives of those around her. She wanted the court to hear just how much she and her family had been impacted, so she poured everything she had into it. She addressed Turner directly and told him the now famous lines, quote, You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice until today, unquote. By the end, the people in the courtroom were crying. Of course, she could have never predicted that her victim impact statement would fall on more ears than those inside the courtroom walls. When a reporter from BuzzFeed contacted Chanel, she gave her permission for them to publish it. She told them to edit it however they saw fit, just make sure her name wasn't attached to it. The woman swiftly told her that editors wouldn't touch her statement. It would be published exactly as she wrote it. The statement was released at 4 p.m. on June 3rd, 2016. In 20 minutes, there'd been 15,000 views. Chanel's contact at BuzzFeed, Katie, began forwarding her thousands of emails they were receiving. Almost every response depicted the location of where they were crying, all of them enraged and devastated by her statement. Once again, she was faced with whether or not she should pour through the comments of the article. This time, however, she found heartening words. Throughout the following week, over 15 million people had read her statement. It was praised and read by politicians, read on the floor of Congress, and translated into French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, and more. Congressman Ted Poe of Texas said she wrote the Bible on what happens to sexual assault victims. Finally, people were no longer minimizing her experience or blaming her for her own rape. They were praising her for speaking out and being strong. She realized that despite the loneliness she felt during the trial, she had been there had been eyes watching her, rooting for her the entire time. She goes on to say, quote, I was surrounded by survivors. I was part of a we. I was the leader on the front line fighting with an entire infantry behind me. They had been waiting for me to find justice. The victory would be celebrated quietly in rooms in towns and states I had never been to. This was only the beginning. I was not alone. They had found me, unquote. So now kind of going into the political side. Um, After Brock's sentencing and the viral impact statement, the public was devastated and enraged. People sought justice, including Stanford law professor Michelle Dauber, an activist against campus sexual assault. Dauber launched a campaign to recall Judge Persky from the stand due to his lenient sentencing in Chanel's case. The theory was that with enough support, Judge Persky could be voted out of his position. This wasn't a typical way for a judge to be recalled, but Dauber was willing to change the rules to, oh, willing to change the rules to ensure justice was served. To get the measure on the ballot, Dauber and volunteers would need to collect at least 90,000 signatures. The team managed to collect over 95,000 and the motion was put onto the ballot. When it came time to vote, 61.51% of Santa Clara voters voted to recall Judge Persky. Chanel felt that justice had finally been served. After her experience, Chanel began to receive contact from activist groups such as RISE, an organization for victims of sexual assault. She realized that she was not alone. Her story was similar to thousands of women just like her. Her experience was not an isolated one and that too too many women became blamed for sexual violence that is forced upon them. Would you ask a victim of a home invasion why didn't they fight back or how they made their house vulnerable to criminals? Yet victims of sexual assault are constantly asked similar questions. In other words, women are tasked with the responsibility of not getting raped. Now Chanel wishes to use her experience and her voice to push for the rights of assault survivors, assault survivors and campaign against a system that cons- consistently fails victims. 
When Chanel's case first began, California law narrowly defined rape as an act of sexual intercourse. Now amendments have been made and there is now a mandatory minimum sentence for the sexual assault of an unconscious person and the definition of rape has been expanded. So that's wow. the summary of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, yeah, there's so much to say and so many thoughts. Um, first off, I think that summary did just like a really good job of kind yeah. of what the book encompasses. Second, I just highly recommend to anyone interested to read the book themselves. It's super impactful. It's disturbing, but it's also empowering it's just like so many things wrapped into one book. Um, I think there's a lot of to be said about sexual assault and rape of women, but especially on college campuses, which could be a whole other episode, um, especially like these Ivy League schools. Um, and I think it has to do with like the prestige of the students and their class and protecting them in their quote unquote bright future. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know. I'm just so proud of her for like getting through that whole experience and then finding the courage to say her name out loud. And then also to write the book, to tell her story the way it should right. be. Told. Because it's like for this whole, the whole, um, time that this was in the media, it was all about Brock Turner. Like Everybody yeah. knows his name. So like yep. the fact that like, the book is even called like say my name. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, this is about you. This is yeah. about what happened to you. Yeah. Very powerful. And I totally respect her wanting to be anonymous for the time oh, she was. 100%. But I think like, unfortunately, when people don't have a name or a face to a victim, it's so easy to, you know, like, not have as much empathy or sympathy um it just like doesn't feel as real so that's why I am just like commend her for being so brave for finally releasing her name and her story for yeah people to know. yeah that her impact statement's also incredible if you want to oh, yes. look that up as well it's that's what else I was gonna say major it's, yeah if you just want to read if there's one thing you should take away from this is you should at least just go read her impact statement which we can like maybe post a link or something to where you yeah. can find that but wow. well thank yeah. you for summarizing um really really important stuff i'm going to shift gears into a happier story let's hear it okay so i wrote this story when um before break like before our Christmas and holiday break. So yes, it yes. really went along with what was happening during that time. So it's a bit okay. delayed here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so did you watch the World Cup? No. <laughs> I, okay. Soccer is one of the like most popular sports that I truly like barely understand any rules and I didn't play. Mm -hmm. So it is like maybe my least favorite sport to watch. Totally. I get that. Um, okay, I know who so... won. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing this. My... I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah. kidding. Okay. Then. Okay. So I did my story on Lionel Messi. Um, oh, yeah. I thought it was Lionel. Did you just look it up though? <laughs> I don't know actually. <laughs> I think it's Lionel. Lionel. <laughs> well, maybe the America pronounces it Lionel Messi. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, anyways, let's just say Messi. Messi. Okay, yeah. Okay, so um, he's from Argentina. Uh, hey. so I'm, as a disclaimer, I'm also not a huge soccer fan. I did play up until eighth grade. Um, but my partner, Zach is a huge soccer fan. Like he watches every Saturday morning. Okay. During the world cup, he was watching all of the games. Um, I watched a few with him. Like it was pretty fun. Like I went to some, a few bars with him and like watched the games as well. It was yeah. like a fun environment. So I wasn't like super into the world cup, but I did tune in and then I did watch the championship game, the finals. Nice. 
Um, so would not say that in the past I have been a, a soccer fan or a football fan, but I would say that this was my my year of soccer and I kind of got into it. No, this is her soccer era. This is my soccer era. <laughs> so this might be like duh to some people who are soccer fans, but I was like very inspired by Messi's story, very inspired by the way he played and his win. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to dive deeper into him as a person and see like how he got there. And when he won, I cried. <laughs> was that the first time he'd won a yeah. World Cup? Okay. Yep. So I'll get into that as well. Okay. Um, but also just like a note on the final game. Um, so it was France versus Argentina. France won the last World Cup. The World Cup is every four years, like the Olympics. So it's mm-hmm. um it's not like it happens every year. It's a really big deal. All of the players, even if like you grew up in Argentina, but then you play professionally in France or wherever you, you go home and you play on your home team, just like the Olympics. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's pretty cool in that way. Okay. So side note on the world cup, we could do a whole horrible story on the world cup and how corrupt FIFA is. So this is all about Messi and him and his team. It's not about FIFA or the world cup. The World Cup, there is a podcast called World Corrupt, and it goes over how the World Cup this year, or in 2022, how corrupt it was, how unbelievably, like, yes, I've in, heard this. inhumane yeah. some of the stuff going on was. So very interesting. We can do a whole other podcast on that. But essentially, the World Cup was held in Qatar this past year, yeah. and um. Qatar itself is an interesting country where it it um, violates a lot of human rights issues. So the fact that it was even being hosted in Qatar was like hugely corrupt mm-hmm. <laughs> because there was a lot of back deals that yeah. were were corrupt on FIFA's end to make it be hosted in Qatar. Okay, and then in order to host the World Cup, you need to have huge stadiums built, all of these lodging, like restaurants, mm-hmm. everything. So to build all of this infrastructure for the World Cup, they brought in migrant workers and there there was an insane amount of death, um, inhumane, you know, working conditions, all that yeah. to get this World Cup. And lie, like lies and manipulation of t- like promises of how it would be working for them. And then. Right. Not. So yeah. Okay, I just want to note that like very much don't want to wash over <laughs> the craziness of that but it was in some people in most like expert standards the best world cup final to ever happen so part of the debate is like okay is this amazing world cup final going to overshadow the atrocity atrocities that happened to build this world cup but it also was said like if this was your first soccer game you've ever watched stop watching because it's the best game you'll ever see okay (laughs) so now your era's over yeah it had everything so france was ahead or no sorry argentina was ahead two to zero and it was like pretty much like a sure thing that they're gonna win and messi's on argentina Mm -hmm. um And France all of a sudden had a comeback. So at the very end of the game, they scored two goals. So they actually went into overtime and then they each scored a goal in overtime. So then it went into a shootout and Argentina won in a shootout. And it was crazy. And like, I literally cried tears of joy. (laughs) So it was like, I was so happy. Yeah. Well, it's just like exciting to be excited for other people. Like I've yes. gotten emotional too because it's just like they're so happy. Oh my gosh! Yes, and I like I didn't know to the extent of like how much this meant to Messi, but I, like I knew it was a big deal. So after looking into it even more, it made me more emotional. Okay, so let me get into Messi. Okay, okay so he is widely regarded as one of the greatest players of all time. My sources this week are for Bleach, are BleacherReport.com and Wikipedia. So Messi is just like he's he's the goat everybody considers him to be the greatest of all time or one of the greatest of all time yeah um, I'm gonna say some of the competitions or awards he's won I don't know what they mean because I'm not I'm not I haven't been in my soccer era for very long and it's already um, over so it's like yeah 
So is it worth it to learn? Yeah. So Messi won a record seven Ballon d'Or awards, a record six European European Golden Shoes, and in 2020 he was named the Ballon d'Or Dream Team. Um, so he played in Barcelona up until 2021, um, his professional career, where he won a club record 35 trophies, including 10 La Liga titles, seven Copa del Rey titles, and four UEFA champion titles. Um, so with his country, he claimed the 2021 Copa America and 2022 FIFA World Cup titles for Argentina. Hey. So Messi was born in Argentina, in Rosario, Argentina, and he showed a great aptitude for football as a child right away. Um, obviously, football is extremely popular worldwide, uh, mm-hmm. especially in Argentina. And fun fact about the World Cup is it's estimated that about 50% of the world population watches the World Cup. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? It's the biggest, need- it's the biggest sporting event in the world, yeah. bigger than the Olympics. Nice. Okay, so in Argentina, he played at a a club called Grandoli, which was coached by his father. And from the age of five and later, he, oh, sorry, from the age of five on, and then later he moved on to the Noel Old Boys, which was like a bit more prestigious of a team in Argentina. His earliest influence as a player came from his maternal grandmother, Celia, who accompanied, accompanied him to his training and matches. He was recognizably smaller than most kids in his age group, and Messi was actually diagnosed eventually um, by doctors as suffering from a hormone deficiency that restricted his growth, which was why he was so much smaller. I didn't know that. Yeah. So in Argentina, his father's health insurance only covered two years of the growth treatment, which cost about 1000 US dollars per month back then so with inflation wow. I'm sure it'd be a lot more yeah um and his team in Argentina agreed to contribute to those health uh hormone treatments but later they reneged on their promise and they weren't going to cover it um and like something interesting about like club teams it's like similar with um hockey in Europe as well like there's clubs that like the youngest children join these teams and it goes all the way up to a professional level. So like if you join a club, you can play through it and then eventually join like the professional team. So like, you know, if somebody's promising, it would make sense to pay for these treatments because they could eventually join your professional team in that same club. Yeah. Okay. So uh, he was then scouted by the Buenos Aires club river plate. Um, whose playmaker Pablo Amer he idolized so like it was a well-known team in Argentina but they also declined to pay for his treatment so Messi had family relatives in Catalonia and they sought to arrange a trial with Barcelona in September of 2000 so they're like okay well let's go to a country that will help us and um he can play there and also receive treatment He's young, but like soccer is so big and they see so much promise that they're like, he could be huge. Yeah. Right. So the first team director, Charlie reacts immediately wanted to sign him in Barcelona, but the board of directors hesitated at the time. It was highly unusual for European clubs to sign foreign players of such a young age. On the 14th of December, an ultimatum was issued for Barcelona to prove their commitment to Messi. Um, and reacts this director that saw promise in him had no other paper on hand so he offered to uh he offered a contract on a paper napkin to Messi oh wow that's, that's how it was decided so Barca so the club um Barcelona the club was so impressed it agreed to pay for uh Messi's medical treatment In February of 2001, the family relocated to Barcelona, where they moved into an apartment near the club's stadium. And during his first year in Spain, Messi actually rarely played due to transfer conflict from his previous team. So without football, he kind of struggled to integrate into the team, football meaning soccer. Um, He was already quite reserved by nature, so 
he, you know, not playing made him even more quiet. And his initial teammates believed that he was mute. Oh, at home, he suffered from homesickness after his mother moved back to Argentina with his brothers and his little sister. So he stayed in Barcelona with his father. Got it. So then he finally completed his growth hormone treatment at age 14, and he became an integral part of the baby dream team, which was Barcelona's greatest ever youth team. Oh my gosh. By the age of 17, uh, he made first team, which is like the top team in a club. Yeah. And he was a full international player by the following year. He quickly became an amazing player and stayed with Barcelona his whole career until 2020, when in 2021, he joined the French club Paris Saint-Germain, which is interesting because then he actually played against a lot of his teammates in this final World Cup because he was playing against France. So do you know why he switched? Is that like common? It is common to to bop around. It's actually fairly okay. uncommon to my knowledge to stay with one team that long. Got it. Yeah. So he's nearing the end of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's basically accomplished everything. Uh, he was known to be one of the greatest players of all time, but he had one thing missing in his career, which was a World Cup championship. And on December 18th, 2022, he did it with his team, Argentina. And what was cool about the game is like he actually like it wasn't like he was on the team playing and his team won. Like he had an assist, a goal, and then a final goal in the shootout. So it was like mm-hmm. he he brought them to victory. He led yeah. them to victory. Yeah. He's very much involved. Yeah. So he's that's likely his last World Cup. I mean, he hasn't said it as much, but like he's, you know, he's on his way to being mm-hmm. retired. So yeah, it was just like kind of the end cap to a perfect career. And I was surprised to hear like his story as a young kid dealing with these hormone treatments and like social issues and like trying to find somebody to pay for his treatment. His parents were not wealthy at all. And it's just very cool to hear like somebody achieve so much and, and come from hard times in their childhood. Yeah. I knew his name. I do know enough about soccer that I have heard his name before. And like, I knew he was an amazing player, but yeah, I did not know the background at all of his life. That's, that is really happy ending to his soccer career. And I really was like, I'm not going to cover him if he's a bad person. (laughs) So I was like, let me like do some research. So I was like, messy controversies like you know like what if he was like yeah like what if he was like a cute or something um essentially like the only thing that popped up was like his dad was like his business manager and there was like some tax stuff that was like brought up but like overall he's well known as well regarded as like he has like a wife and kids yeah his same wife that he met when he was literally like 12 I think in Argentina like very young so gosh Very happy. Very good story. Yeah, cute. Yeah, so that that is the start and end of my soccer era. Stay tuned for what comes next. Um, And with that, we'll, we'll leave everybody. Have a great rest of your week. Let's have a great 2023 together. We love you and stay happy. As happy as you can be. Bye. Bye.